This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, we've got a special guest on the podcast today. His name is Trevor Thompson. So he's the senior acquisitions editor and also directs the audiobook program at Erdman's Publishing Company. And here's the thing. You're going to figure out pretty quickly in this interview why he directs the audiobook program because he sounds so good. He's got a great voice. And you know, I'm mega jealous of anyone that's got that deep, sultry, like beautiful voice because of all the vocal cord problems I've had. But I tried to get over my jealousy so that we could have a good interview today. And I think we did an okay job of that. But also, he has taught at the University of Chicago Divinity School. He taught on Greek and also at Abilene Christian University. And now he also teaches at Calvin University. But he is also the co translator of Gallons on the Avoidance of Grief and the author of over 70 encyclopedia articles. And he's also the co-editor of two other volumes. So Ephesus as a Religious Center under the Principate in Christian Body and also Christian Self Concepts of Early Christian Personhood. Now, today, the, the reason why we got this conversation going is because Erdman's, which is his publishing house, they publish a couple of really great books. One is Christobiography, which uh, we talked about a little bit in the interview, but mainly we focus on this one, which is Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, The Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony. Now, I tried to get an interview with uh, Professor Bauckham, but he basically doesn't do that anymore. He's, he's you know, later on in his life, later on in his career, he doesn't really do that. But Trevor is an expert at this book and all the other offerings that they add. And so we didn't have a whole lot of time today. I wish we could have gone a lot, a lot more. Perhaps we'll have another, another conversation down the road, but we do talk about Trevor's background. We talk about these two books, but specifically Jesus and the eyewitnesses, because, because Jesus and the eyewitnesses is a landmark book that if you're studying anything about the early Christian church, the first century church, the reliability of the gospels, you're not going to have to go far down the trail before you're going to have somebody suggest this book and say that it's required reading. And so we're going to talk in this podcast about eyewitness testimony, how a lot of people are very kind of wary of eyewitness testimony, but how the difference between our current written tradition and history differs from back then, which was oral tradition and history. We also talk about the importance of the first century church and the martyrs and how it relates to the early writings of non-Christian writers like Josephus and, and Celsus and Tacitus and others. We also get into how someone can be a New Testament scholar and then not be a Christian. Because there are people that literally have the same academic uh, bona fides and or bona fides as someone like Trevor Thompson, but doesn't come to the conclusion that Jesus is Christ, that Jesus is the Lord and needs to be the Lord of their life and that he paid for their sins on the cross, how, how they kind of have this disputatious attitude or this dissonance in their soul where they can't exactly come to that conclusion from a soul level, not just an intellectual level. But then also we got into an interesting discussion about the doctrines of infallibility and inerrancy and how that can kind of lead to some issues for some people. And I push back a little bit on him to say that hey, people that dig into these doctrines, how that can actually hurt their faith and cause stumbling blocks and all of that. And we talked about a lot of other stuff as well. I really, really enjoy my time with them. So I don't want to keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Trevor Thompson, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I noticed this uh, before we started recording, but you have a lovely voice, sir. It's It's got a good tone to it. It's very deep. It's very whatever. And you also said after this interview, you got to go record an audio book. So what's right. it like walking around with the voice of God? That's got to be cool. <laughs> You're very kind. Um, no, I, it, you know, in life you work for a lot of things and you struggle and you try to build things and for, for good or bad, right or wrong. Um, my, my genetics and gave me the voice of my father with a with slight modification. So it just, it is what it is. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun and creates opportunity. So, well, if you can, if you could ball that up and start selling it, I've had two vocal cord <laughs> surgeries this year right, for collapsed right. vocal cords. And it sounds like you have like four or five extra vocal folds. So I hate you. <laughs> I hate you right from the beginning. Just wanted you well, to know that, right. but that's we're, so we're, gonna, we're, we're frenemies as we begin. There we go. That's like right. It. That's right. This is very contentious and I can't wait to see where it goes, but, um, we need to talk a little bit to set up for our conversation today, a little bit about your background and your education, mm -hmm. because yep. we're going to be digging into some uh, fairly heady topics It'll be decently academic, but also very palatable. So don't anybody run away from the interview. But what, what's your background and kind of how did you get into doing the work you're doing now? And then tell us what that work is, obviously. Sure. Um, so I, um, I I grew up in the Christian tradition. Um, I grew up actually in Western Oklahoma. Um, I attended. Where at? Um, I'm from Oklahoma. I'm from Southwest Oklahoma. Are you really? 
Yeah, I'm from I am. Um, I I am. Um, I <laughs> wow. I I was born in um, Oklahoma City, but I grew up in the thriving metropolis of Clinton, Oklahoma, the oh, home yeah. of the, uh, the home of the Red Tornadoes. And, That's and right. so, yeah. So I, I I grew up in Oklahoma and uh, attended Oklahoma Christian. And um, began as a biochemistry major there, um, had a love for language and history, um, and so actually transitioned to doing biblical studies. Um, I went from there to Harding Graduate School of Religion um, in Memphis, Tennessee, um, master's degrees there, and then went from there uh, to the University of Chicago for doctoral studies, and then ended up actually um, teaching in the Divinity School um, as an adjunct um, instructor of Greek. And then I took a position um, at Abilene Christian University, where mm-hmm. I taught for a number of years before um, coming now to working at um, William B. Erdman's uh, publishing company, which is a, a longstanding um, Christian publisher. Um, and I also continue to adjunct in the classroom um, for, um, for Calvin um, here around the corner. So that's my, that's my trajectory. Okay, so quick question on that. I don't want to go too far off into this because we have some like uh, real subjects to cover. But something that is talked about a lot in the circles that I kind of run in is the the liberalization of a lot of our um, Christian places of learning, Bible colleges and theological schools. And you can't really liberalize without kind of changing the meaning. So you'll hear people talk about things, you know, scriptures concerning homosexuality or divorce or, or, or whatever. And they purport to have new, I guess, Gnostic knowledge of what these words actually mean and what Jesus actually meant and what Moses would say if he were alive today. And that's concerning to me as, you know, a non-professional Christian, just like a Christian that can read and discern. Do you share some of that same concern? Is is that concern maybe a little bit too blown up by, you know, prominent uh, conservative Christians? What's your read on that? Yeah, I, I mean, knowledge doesn't um, ever scare me. And, and arguments don't really scare me. Um, I, you know, people of all different theological stripes and political persuasions come up with new and different ideas, um, whether it's assessing a, a current situation or the way they're reading an ancient text, whether that's the Constitution or the Bible or or the Quran. And and so, um, yeah, I guess for me, I, I, I see kind of a constant push and pull, you know, um, all the way up and down all of our institutions. And I'm more interested in the substance of someone's position, how they're actually making the claims that they're making and trying to um, not necessarily label someone um, one way or the other. And I say that as someone who across my educational trajectory, I've been variously labeled on both sides of the, uh, of, of, of the spectrum. And so I, I just encourage people, you know, listen to me and hear what I have to say and I'll listen to you and hear what you have to say. And, and so I don't know if that's exactly the answer, you know, maybe I went a little off topic of what mm. you were hoping, but that's, um, you know, people make arguments and the substance is in the argument and, and, you know, whether it's good or bad or it's conservative or it's liberal or it's left or it's right or whatever it is, um, they have to be assessed. And so um, my own experience, you know, rising through the ranks uh, of academia is that, at all the various institutions and geographical locations that I went, I, I engaged with and experienced people who were on both sides of me. Um, and, and they struggled to understand me at times and I struggled to understand them, but we, we talked and I, and really, I think that's the only way forward is to talk. So. Well, and there's, you have to be intellectually honest. So if you're reckoning with someone's viewpoint, you have to check yourself and you know, regardless of your disposition, your personality, you constantly need to check yourself and your own motivations to be like, did I ask them that follow-up question because I tried to hit them with a zinger or because I honestly want to understand their position because you can have a conversation with someone that's not a postmodernist. So if, if someone's like, yes, truth is real, truth is not relative, like there, there is, you know, this either happened or it didn't happen. That's a person that you can reckon with. Now, there are other people that it's just pearls before swine. If people think, you know, a certain things, it's like, look, one of my favorite questions to ask people, Trevor, and then we'll get back into what I actually want to talk about, is if I feel a debate coming or an argument coming, some sort of disputatious environment, I will ask the person, hey, if you were wrong about what you just said, would you want to know? Would you want me to tell you? 
and their reaction will give me the information I need. Cause if they're like, well, I'm not wrong. And why would you even suggest that? It's like, okay, just talk right. about football because at this point, <laughs> you know, they're, they're not really going to work it. But if they were like, well, yeah, if I, if I believe something that is factually inaccurate, I would want to know that's a person that's fertile ground for a great conversation. Speaking right. of things that are great, <clears throat> I got a couple of books here that could also work as home defense weapons because they're so tomish. Look at these things. But we got <laughs> Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, which this is just like an absolute master class. Um, this is on our 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. And then we have Christobiography, which is by Craig Keener. And both of these books work as kind of a, a deep somewhat academic Christian apologetic as to why we can look at the resurrection of Jesus, not just as a fanciful mythological story, but as something that can actually be trusted. Now, that is about as 30,000 foot of an overview as you can get of two deep, deep books. But I just want generically for you to talk to me about these two titles, which is put out by your publisher, in terms of how they can be used and why they are important to just the everyday, regular old Christian man. Right. So... When one begins to think about um, the canonical Gospels, the, the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you, you can approach them in, in, in different ways. And so what, one way that, that often happens um, in churches and in apologetic circles is, is, a, is a very kind of, of top-down approach. And so you, you construct a doctrine um, of inspiration or inerrancy, and then you kind of map that onto the text. Um, and, and that's and and that serves its purposes and um, and it does what it does um, in the academy writ large um, in the academy that studies and and among learned circles that study the Bible um, you you really have to argue and think in different ways you you can't assume um, as a matter of public dialogue that everyone's going to hold the same view about God's role in, in inspiring the text or creating the text and so what what both of these books really do is kind of come from 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 the bottom and and that is rather than than say these books were written by god therefore these books are true they they try to do the real down in the in the weeds hard work of doing history without assumption um, and to see where that to see where that leads um, starting with with professor bockham's um, book um, there's been a long and contentious debate um, that has spanned continents um, more than a hundred years. It's been ongoing um, about the quest for the historical Jesus. And what, and what that, that really is, is an attempt to get at the relationship between um, the real Jesus, the, the actual man who moved uh, around in Galilee and then in Jerusalem and other locations, and and the version of the man um, that 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 you get you know in the in 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 the gospels, and historians have tried to use the sources in various ways to reconstruct what they call the historical Jesus. And um, among many, um, the assumption has long been that the stories about Jesus, the traditions about Jesus, sort of grew. They 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 grew over 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 time, and. And, and they developed in a variety of ways and, and that they are completely disconnected from the events that, that actually happened. Um, stories do change, right? I mean, that's, I mean, right. stories are, stories evolve. And, um, in my own life, I mean, I, I tell stories in different ways and depending upon my audience, I may or may not include certain elements or other elements. So for example, you know, if I'm telling my brother a story, he and I have a certain rapport. We grew up together. I mean, we're, we're both ex jocks. Um, both relatively smart people. And we have a kind of a banter that comes from having a brother who's, you know, 19 months separation in age. Mm. And, and there's, there's sometimes a bit of color um, in, 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 in terms of the stories that my brother and I tell each other. But, the, and this is a weird analogy, but whenever I tell that same story to my mother, um, who's in her 70s, the, the story may have a little different flavor. Um, yeah, yeah. to it in terms of her expectations. And so, I, I mean, that, that's just kind of a macro illustration of people are telling the stories about Jesus and scholars recognize this of, of all bents, right? Um, and, and they're choosing to tell certain elements of the story in one context or another element in another. And, and inevitably, things happen to the stories and they get connected to other stories, etc. cetera. Um, the, the real question has been, um, did those stories so evolve 
as to be removed from any kind of reality. And what, what Professor Bauckham tried to do is he tried to, to make a case and in what is a landmark book. And so pretty much everyone who does um, studies in early Christianity and the Gospels, regardless of one's political, religious orientation, you need to know and understand Professor Bauckham's book. In other words, it's not it, it it's a book written for anyone who's serious about studying the Bible and Christian origins, not just someone who's a Christian, if that makes sense. Right. And so what what, what he tried to 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 really argue it is that and it, and it's a genre question. Um, you know, which whenever I teach my students, I tell them the most important question that that you will ever ever encounter as you read the Bible is what are you reading? What is what is the genre? And right. and if you if you if you make a mistake in that initial moment, right, then you're going to have problems um, because you're going to assume certain things. And so the example that I that I give to students is the famous proverb. You know, if you if you raise up a child in the way the child should go, when they grow old, they basically won't depart from it, right? And that's my summary of of the proverb. And for for a season, I was in pastoral ministry, and I can't tell you how many parents would come to me. And they would have a child that for various reasons they didn't think was doing what they thought they should be doing. And they thought they had failed as a parent. But what I explained to them is that you're confusing a promise with a proverb. Hmm. A proverb is a general statement. A, a promise, you know, it says this is going to happen if you do this. And these are proverbs, not promises. And so when, when you come to the Gospels, what genre are they? What, what exactly is it that, that, that we're reading? And so scholars use all kinds of terms. At, at the most basic level, they are Gospels. Um, but Gospel is actually a category of something you, you, you preach. So Paul, Paul preaches the Gospel, he says. That doesn't mean he, he's preaching Mark, obviously, because of, of, of dating. Um, but what exactly is um, a Gospel? Is it... Is it myth? Is it memory? Is it history? Is it biography? What is it? And so what, what Professor Bauckham tries to do and what he argues and what is a tome, and you're right, I mean, it can hold the door open, um, is, he, is he tries to argue um, that the Gospels are a form of testimony and, and far removed um, from the idea that this was a testimony about the life of Jesus without connections to the events, he tries to argue um, and, and does throughout the pages in a variety of different ways that the story of Jesus as, as it evolves and as it is interpreted in, in the immediate years and then decades and then subsequently, at, at least in that initial period, um, that there are eyewitnesses people who were actually there, people who saw events, people who heard things, that they acted um, for Professor Bauckham as a kind of control over, over, over what was going on. Now, um, and, and stop me if you want to push back at some point or you just want me to kind of keep, keep rolling along. Well, I want to ask specifically about that, but I want to, I want to highlight a couple of things that you said real quick, Trevor. Yeah. <clears throat> the genre question is so important because, <clears throat> excuse me, because so many people, I, I find them to be literalists about things that are not supposed to be literal. And so <clears throat> just this morning, I was reading Matthew 19, where it talks about the rich young ruler and how Jesus says it'll be harder for, you know, camel to go through the eye of the needle and all that. And then I, I want to like grab literalists and make them read that sentence and be like, do you think Jesus was talking about a literal camel and a literal eye of a needle? Is that what you think he was trying to say? Same thing. Like when Jesus says, I am a vine, he's not, he doesn't mean that he's an actual vine. When he's talking about how he is adored, that doesn't mean you should knock on him and turn his handle. Like that's the thing, like genre is so important when you're reading the yes. Bible. And then obviously you can talk about context and other things thereafter. But the importance of these books that we're going to discuss in the eyewitness thing is it kind of blows right past the this growing trend of people that think Jesus never existed, that there was not a historical Jesus, that it wasn't an actual person that lived, even though that is the most attested to fact in all of antiquity. It's like, if you don't believe that Jesus existed, but you believe that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon, then I, I don't know I don't know how to help you square that circle. But let's dive a little bit deeper into the eyewitness thing, because right from the beginning, someone's going to read the title 
title in the book and say Jesus and the eyewitnesses, they're going to remember the last time they watched the Joe Rogan experience and where Joe Rogan was saying, well, hey, everybody knows that eyewitness testimony, it's not even admissible in a lot of court cases because people forget and they don't really understand. And maybe, maybe they were all on mushrooms and maybe they all had the same vision at the same time. And then, you know, people have died for wrong beliefs all the time. So the fact that they're eyewitnesses doesn't mean anything, but start to break down even more further why it's so important that it was eyewitnesses and what eyewitness testimony of these actual events, those attestations, why that is particularly important to how we understand the resurrection. Right. I mean, there's a couple of, a couple of things there that, that, that I, I want to touch on. Um, when, when you, whenever you understand that the Jesus tradition is in conversation with people who were there, that that does act as a kind kind of control over just completely recreating events, right? Mm. Now, with that, let me say this. Um, we all understand that memory can be faulty. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, we've all been in a relationship with a significant other, and we've all recalled an event where we were both there, and we both experienced very, very different things in terms of, of what happens. But I think for Bauckham, what he's really pushing against is the idea that basically the people who were there just kind of disappeared after after the after the events of Jesus's death, burial, and then the resurrection, and as then the movement that became Christianity spread. And, and what he's pushing back against and saying is, look, I'm not saying that all eyewitnesses are perfect, but the idea that all of these people who were actually there right? Who, I mean, as Jesus is traveling around in his itinerant journeys and places, people who went to sleep and Jesus was within speaking distance of them. They woke up and he was within distance of them. That Mm -hmm. people who heard him say things in different ways and in different contexts, that, that they were there. Does that mean necessarily that Everything they remembered was completely perfect and exactly how it happened. Well, well, no. I mean, it it doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that you're at least as close to the sources as you're going to get as a kind of controlling mechanism. Um, Now, you know, so the question of in that, and let me say this too, the question of memory is an exploding field in in general. Memory in the courtroom can be a problem, as it can be in relationships. But mm-hmm. part of what Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, has done is is really encouraged in the study of early Christianity, the study of memory itself. And, and what's important to, to note here is that different cultures have different capacities for memory and retelling of stories and different expectations of those stories. And, and, and that, and that's another kind of interesting point that, and that's one of the things that, that Bauckham's work has done. And there, there's <clears throat> at, at, at the publisher that I work at, we, we published uh, a book by a, a brilliant um, a German scholar named Sander Hubenthal, who's actually doing work on memory work in, in the ancient world. And so for your, for the listeners, um, it's important to understand that what we mean by memory in America and our own training and ability to retain information may be disconnected um, from another culture today around the globe um, and 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 certainly a, across time. Well, let me, very, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, let, let me ask you about that even a little bit further because – in modernity, we think we're smart, but we're really, really dumb because we have, you know, C.S. Lewis has this quote about chronological snobbery. We think because we have access to all the knowledge that's ever been known right. in the universe and this smart, you know, computer or supercomputer mm-hmm. that's in our pocket. But I can't do basic math anymore. Why? Because I just asked Siri to do it. I can't, you know, I can't remember right. what it was like to to really dig for information because I can just go to Google and I can find the answer in 14 seconds. But this this makes it very important to have a discussion about the difference between oral tradition in history and mm-hmm. written tradition in history. Because when you hear stories about people thousands of years ago that memorized the entire Pentateuch 
or memorized an entire gospel or memorized an entire letter from the Apostle Paul in modernity, that that seems beyond possible. It doesn't even seem plausible because we can barely remember the words to our favorite song, much less a, a very detailed thing that needs to be you know displayed properly and I guess regurgitated properly. So give give the listener a better idea of how the eyewitness testimony kind of weaves into what was going on in the first century because it was an oral tradition, not necessarily a written one. Right. I mean, you know, literacy levels were very different. Um, exactly. Yeah, it was basically it, not it, existent. I, I mean, and so, you know, people debate, you know, who could read and at what levels. and But that's certainly um, what we consider the norms of literacy in the Western world would not have been the norms in, in first century Palestine, that area, um, mm. the Galilee, etc. And so people told stories. They, they communicated a lot of things. Um, again, that doesn't mean that it always gets transmitted perfectly, but if, if there is a sense in which what is exactly is said and you can't just immediately go and consult it, there is a sense in which you maybe try to hold on to the material uh, a little better and retain it. But let me also say that even, even in our cultural context, so I was raised in, in a, a Christian religious tradition and every Christian religious tradition is different, but in the one in which I was raised, we were required um, in early grade school to memorize large portions of scripture. Mm. You know, so I, I remember in third grade um, reciting the Sermon on the Mount. From, oh, wow. From from start to, to, to finish. And that the particular tradition that I was a part of really prized the, the retention and knowledge of scripture. So we were asked to memorize a lot of it. There are religious traditions today, um, even in Grand Rapids, um, non-Christian religious traditions that ask young people to memorize huge portions of sacred text, sometimes in their original languages, and I like I can't I can't imagine yeah. you know g- going to a mega church in the city where I live in Grand Rapids and saying okay for the sixth grade curriculum you know everyone is going to memorize Galatians in Greek I mean that's just <laughs> not that that's just not it would going, never happen. That's never, but, and and so based, you know, recognizing these different capacities and these different abilities, um, I mean, it, it is, it is important. And so yes, memory is a problem and because we're human, right? And so the, the idea that you put a memory in a lockbox and you, you know, shut it and then you open it and it's exactly the same. I mean, all the memory theory stuff has said, that's a problem. There's a sense in which every time you recall something, you know, it's, it's, it, it gets recreated in a sense, but its connection with the original can vary depending upon the person and depending upon the cultural context, etc. And so, I mean, I, I think it, at the strength of what of what Bakum wants to argue in Jesus and the eyewitnesses is that one, the testimony of the Gospels is connected to actual eyewitnesses. Those eyewitnesses operated in a different kind of oral memory culture than the modern Western world. As such, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as such, there there's not just freedom to just completely create um, whole cloth without some connection with those traditions. Now, <clears throat> the genre question itself becomes crucial here, and let me and let me kind of zero in on 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 an example of that. If you mentioned, you know, the camel and, and literal reading and, and let me, let me hone in on, on the gospel of Matthew and the genealogy there. Yeah. Um, if, if Matthew breaks the genealogy of Jesus down into three groups of 14 generations. Now, even the most, even the most basic study of, of the, the Hebrew Bible, or what Christians often call the Old Testament. If you go through and track all of those people, you're, it becomes very apparent that there are people missing from those lists. Correct, yeah. Right. And so the lists have been structured, structured in a certain way. And so what scholars believe is that in this, you know, this is kind of beneath the surface, and this is not the kind of ancestry, if you're doing ancestry.com, you're going to build. Right, but that David Dalit Vav Dalit, the name of David, 
equals 14 is comprised of three letters. This is not kind of crazy stuff, but this is kind of mm. standard scholarship. Right. And that rather than construct a literal genealogy of Jesus, that what Matthew has done is created a symbolic genealogy using numerology and, and what the ancients called gematria. Um, it, it's a form of connecting um, letters and numbers to reality to basically say the exact lineage is not really important. What is important is that he is of David. And, and that is just fundamentally different. But if, if you approach the Gospels and, and you assume genealogy has to be done according to the canons of modern history and the rules of ancestry.com or, you know, whatever, you're going to completely misunderstand. And, and, and so, and Professor Bauckham is aware of all of that. In, in other words, that, I mean, he understands that even as there's eyewitnesses and even as they're working with their own testimony and their conversation with each other, they're doing it in ancient first century ways, if that makes sense. It, it absolutely makes sense. And I think that's an important thing to bring up because even just going from the writings of Matthew to the writings of Luke, it's not going to mm -hmm. feel the same. All the gospels kind of have a different feel to them. Yep. And there, there's obviously a reason behind the curtain that we may never know as to why that is. Certain things appeal to people in a certain way, obviously. But what this does kind of lead to, Trevor, we, this discussion about eyewitnesses and, and transmission of the gospel over time or any of the, the biblical texts is people can make – all right, let me back up just a little bit. People – I try to put myself in the mindset of an atheist constantly to where I'm trying to read something not as someone who already believes this because then I feel like I start proof texting. I try to read it as a skeptic, someone that's not cynical, that can't be swayed, but a skeptic that's like, no, nah, you really got to show me. And when you talk about inerrancy and an infallibility – the easiest things for one of those people to point to is, well, this gospel says this, and then this gospel literally says something different. Which one's correct? Because when you start arguing for one over the other, you're arguing against inerrancy and infallibility, right? Mm -hmm. And so talk to me a little bit about that because it's a concern for a lot of people, even well-meaning Christians. They'll, they'll get to a point all the way up to a crisis of faith because they're like, I've been told my whole life that this is infallible and inerrant. But there are certain Bibles that exclude particular verses because they're not in all the transcripts. So which transcript is right? Which is the infallible text? Is the ESV infallible? Well, because we don't know if it has all the right translations from the German, which came from the Hebrew and the Greek and blah, blah, blah. So you know what I'm saying. Just kind of give me your line on thinking on that. Right. Oh, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. I, I think it's important for anyone to be honest. And, and to be transparent. Um, I was raised as an infallibilist and an inerrantist. And in the course of learning languages and, and, and study, um, I was a person who encountered the reality and the problem of, of those doctrines. The, the real issue that, that I'll get at with them is that it's not always clear what exactly they're talking about. Because it's one, it's one thing to say, the Bible is inerrant, that is without error, right? My immediate response to that always is, which one? And, and, and they say, well, the original. And, and then as the historian, I say, I would love, I would love for you to take me and, and show me where they are. And so the doctrine um, itself is a doctrine about a set of texts that don't actually exist. And to me, where I sit and as I, and as I work with students, I think the doctrines themselves are more of a stumbling block than they are a help. And I've tried to actually move away from them because that they can force you into intellectually dishonest positions. Um, and so what, what, what I like to think when I think about the text and I think about inspiration, I like to think about the world. And in, in the sense that, you know, as, as a believer, you know, I believe that in a meaningful way, God created the world and that God continues to sustain and provide and be active in the world. But the world itself is a crazy place at times. And, and so for me, there's a larger theological question of not just what is God doing with this book, but what is God doing kind of writ large in the world? And I like the freedom as I sit now to recognize that God may allow and do things 
that I wouldn't allow or do. Um, the other problem, which I think is significant about inerrancy and infallibility, is that the Christian confession is that God revealed himself perfectly once. And that was and that was in the human being that that, that we know as Jesus. Um, although, um, as your listeners may know, he's his name was actually Joshua. Um, and but people don't realize that. Um, it's just a, a quick aside. But Jesus is um, the the transliteration of Yeshua, which is which is Joshua. And so he, he's as Jewish as it gets with this great name. But you're right in that when you create these these doctrines of inerrancy and infallibility, Christians can be forced to kind of play funny games with evidence, right? And and so, for example, one, one thing that is happening in Bibles right now, um, your, your listeners may or may not be aware of this, but scholars have long been aware that, and we're going off topic of the Gospels here, but that um, Goliath got progressively bigger over time. And so, I mean, I, you know, I watched the Veggie Tales, you know, version of, of, of Goliath growing up mm. and all of that. And, and, you know, remember the huge posters from Vacation Bible School. Um, and so scholars now understand that Goliath was actually much shorter, um, still a very large human being, but much shorter. But it it actually changes the story in an important way. And, and please just stay with me for one second, because mm. um, the way I learned that story was, you know, there's this huge person, which is even bigger than King Saul, and of course, bigger than little David, but this is the might and the power of God. Well, when, when Goliath gets brought down to size, right, the size that the earliest evidence leads us to, what you discover is that the text describes Saul as being head and shoulders taller than the average Israelite. And so Saul and Goliath are actually kind of equals in the arena that's about to happen. And so this text really becomes an issue about Saul and that the guy who should be fighting Goliath is afraid and that David steps up, but the text changed. But if, if, if you're so bent on saying the Bible is completely perfect, it doesn't allow scholarship to advance and go, you know what? For some reason, God allowed the height of Goliath to kind of grow over time, and that it's actually changed the meaning of the story. And so by returning to the original form of the story, we can actually recover something in terms of intent and understanding, particularly the David and Saul dynamic. And and so for, for me, um, I, I struggle with inerrancy and infallibility because, one, they were such a stumbling block to me. And um, I now understand God to have um, the kind of freedom that I actually see in the copying, transmission, and translation of the Bible. I appreciate you you giving us that perspective. I don't want to go too much farther down that rabbit hole because I have a few other important topics sure, I want to hit sure. before we got to get you out of there. Here's here's my personal struggle with inerrancy and infallibility. And again, mm -hmm. I try to be as honest as possible in my show with mm -hmm. my foibles and with the things I struggle with because I know I'm not the only one. So <clears throat> I remember years into my show, I did an entire episode on why most men hate contemporary Christian music, and it's because it sucks and it's effeminate. And just by me saying it, most guys were like, oh, I felt this way my whole life and I thought I was broken. So I'm, I'm okay with admitting some stuff. Here Here's my problem. I think most slippery slope arguments are not based in truth or intellectual honesty, but I think this one could be. And what I mean by that is, is if you take a position that is skeptical of inerrancy or infallibility, that it opens up the door, you know, you could say to Satan just blatantly or just to any cultural or secular influence that begins to unravel your faith and then you become one of these people that is quote unquote deconstructing to where you're like, I'm going back to the originals and this doesn't mean what I was taught. And then you, you get to this jaded position of, I can't trust any of this. So I'm just going to go do me. I'm going to go be spiritual as opposed to religious. And so that's where I look at doctrines almost like a glue, as long as the doctrines are based in something that is of God, that is of biblical heft, if that makes sense. So I guess, what do you have to say to that, to somebody that is maybe they might be better off just believing the doctrine because it's going to keep them from getting distracted by all the other shiny arguments over here that ultimately take them away from Christ. Does that make sense? 
No, no, it, it absolutely does. Um, and, and, it, and it's a tough road. I mean, I, I think that different people um, that wear the name Christian and, and claim Christian faith, different people are capable. And this is going to sound a little strange. And I don't mean this to sound elitist at all. But different people are equipped to handle certain things than, than others. And not, sure. everybody, not everybody is capable of, of understanding certain things. What I can say f- in, from my own biography, that in the end, those doctrines, because of my, my access to knowledge and access to original manuscripts and ability to read them, that it became a real problem for me. Um, because I saw the problems. Now, you're also correct that for someone who doesn't have the time, the energy, or frankly, the desire sure. to spend the years to learn all of that and to learn all the nuance, that that having some kind of doctrine like that um, can serve a purpose. I would, I would, not, I would not deny that. Um, as long as there's just an understanding that it can be a, a true stumbling block for some. Yeah, it, it certainly could be a stumbling block. And again, I was reading again in Matthew 19 today about how the disciples are trying to get the kids away from God or, mm-hmm. you know, from Jesus, the God man. And the, he's like, no, like they bring them towards me. Let me bless them. And it's the faith like a child that mm-hmm. that is is better perhaps than the person that has all the intellectual horsepower to, you know, power an entire city if they needed to. But then that creates more problems than it does uh, streamlining their ideas and their processes. But this is this kind of leads to another thing that I wanted to talk about. One of the, the most interesting things in the world to me, in the world of cr- Christianity, is New Testament scholars, New Testament experts that are atheists. So these are people that know and this gets into the Calvinist argument, like have they been given faith yet? And you know, all that kind of stuff. It opens up a whole bunch of uh, doors. <clears throat> but it's someone like you that has the understanding of the Greek. They're a professor. They've written books. They've edited books. They've, they've done all these different things. And yet they come to the exact opposite conclusion of someone like you that, yeah, Jesus isn't the son of God. But yeah, I, I, I believe and I've checked all the historical data to say that these documents are true. That that's the thing that's just so crazy to me. Like, how can somebody and you know these people personally? How can these people come to that realization? Is it as simple as the fact that God has not yet, or potentially would never, reveal Himself to them individually? Um, wow, there's a lot there. Um, right. Yeah. In, ter- in terms of different options, there. I um, I believe human beings make choices, and and the choices that we make sometimes don't make sense to us, you know, in the moment. I mean, I, I certainly have made choices in my life and I'd look back on it and think, wow, I really wish I had made a different choice. And that can be about something really small or it can be about something really big. Um, I, I, I think it's important to recognize that people can look at, look at all the evidence and for whatever reason in their life, right? the way their brain works, their history, whatever, they make a different choice. And, and I think that's okay because that's what humans do. Um, and I, I would never be one to say that because I, I don't, I don't think you intellectually can be honest and say, if you don't accept Christianity, you're a fool or something like that. Like I don't, cause that's just not my experience of life. But for reasons that I don't fully understand, people choose different faith paths or non-faith paths than, than than I do. And so I guess to answer your question, I don't fully understand all the choices I make, and I don't understand all the choices that other people make. Um, I respect them, um, friends, colleagues who disagree with me on any number of points. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, there are there are brilliant, brilliant people with incredible linguistic and historical skills who, who do not choose, um, or who are Christian and become non or, or different. And I, it's a mystery to me, the mystery of human choice, but it's also a mystery to me sometimes as I look at trials and I look at the evidence that that's presented for or against a person in a case and one person, right. Can hang, you know, that's just the you're all sitting there you're all looking at the same stuff and someone says guilty or not guilty and everyone else says the opposite and the rest of the world looks on and goes right 
when is it presuppositions that that person had walking in? Is it this person that it finally, for the first time in their life, they have power because they can uphold an entire process where somebody's life potentially hangs in the balance and they just love that power. It's like back during COVID people that never had power all of a sudden could tell you, put that mask on or you can't eat here. And it's like, ah, okay. Like some people just love that power. It just kind of goes to their head. But it reminds me also, Trevor is just about God hardening people's hearts. And I remember not really understanding what that meant when it said, you know, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in my mind, I was like, oh, God made Pharaoh, you know, do that and believe that way. But like, no, no, no. God took what Pharaoh was already doing, the hard heart that he was already in possession of and the decisions he was making. And he hardened that. He was like, okay, man, if you want it, I'm going to give it to you good and hard. And here you go. I'm going to make sure that your heart is hardened on that. And again, in Matthew 19, we see about the hardening of people's hearts as it pertains to divorce and, you know, uh, just the overall marital relationship and those types of things as well. I do want to want to back up a, a little bit sure. before we, we get you out of here. And this is, again, a wide question, but, you know, we're just scratching the surface today because we want the people to go dig into these books. Sure. But just the overall importance, Trevor, of the first century church, because the first century church, the ecclesias that were in this area of the world, those were, you know, gatherings of eyewitnesses. Um, and then also we get into the importance of the first century martyrs, really the first, second, and third century martyrs, whenever you realize what people did you know, gladly, like people walked to their deaths. They walked to arenas where they were basically fed to wild animals. They were burned alive. They were put in oil. They were drowned alive. They were pulled apart by horses. And we don't see any attestations from historical writers that any of them were denouncing their faith as they were being nailed to crosses or as they were being torn apart by bears. But you also have Jesus and Christianity described in non-Christian writings, the, the writings of Josephus and Celsus and Pliny the Younger and Tacitus and, and Lucian and, and all these other people. Talk to me about the importance, and I know that's a, a million different subjects all at once that I'm just kind of mm. combining, so I apologize, but why that's so important to us 2,000 years after the first century ecclesia is a first century church to be able to look back on the writings of these people and look back at the descriptions of what happened to these martyrs and how that could steal S T E E L our faith and help us understand that, no, we're believing in something that actually went down. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of different points there. Um, that let me just say in, in, in general that, um, what became Christianity, uh, emerges in, in, in the crucible of, of, of a form of Judaism. Right. I mean, that's kind of initially where it kind of emerges from. And there were, as the earliest sources we have attest, people that found the idea and the message um, ridiculous. Um, yep. And and that I mean, that's just there from the bottom layer. And <clears throat> whenever people ask me, well, how could someone think that it's so evidently true? You know, there are any number of new ideas, new religions that appear today. And I'm not necessarily saying they're right. I'm just saying, imagine your initial response, right? When you hear X, Y, Z about this faith or, you know, this celebrity religion or whatever, and, and you're skeptical, you wonder what the motives are, et cetera. And so like the, the cards are kind of stacked against it. Um, it Jerusalem and the origins of the Christian movement were not the epicenter of the, of the Roman empire. They were far removed from the core centers of power. Now, eventually they moved, right? They moved west and eventually found Rome and 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 beyond. But I, I think for, for many people who encountered the earliest message, it was kind of depraved superstition from some backwater province over in the east and, you know, strange people anyway. I mean, just, you know, kind of all of those right. kind of prejudices. But um, it... It was important and and continues to be important to the Christian faith that there is a thread, there's a, there's a connection in terms of texts and in terms of institutions and in terms of traditions that that tie beliefs and practices today to beliefs and practices in the in the first century world, and and as such, I think that's why Professor Bauckham's book made such an impact because he he looked at the beginning of those stages and he said that rather than being a chaotic disorganized unformed 
wildly theoretical moment in the in the immediate decades after after the the events of Jesus's death and and the events that followed, that there were actual people who were there. Um, not that they were the final say, not that their memory was always 100% perfect, but that, that there was a, a kind of buffer, if you will, um, that, that allowed a kind of authenticity about the stories that we have. And that's, again, what we have are gospels. They are in no sense modern biographies. And there's so many things that, from a modern historian's perspective, that we would like to know. Um, but to say that eyewitnesses and people who knew eyewitnesses weren't involved in those initial stages is on the strength of, of Bauckham's claims inaccurate. Um, they were in the mix. Um, well, yeah. I think that that is a fantastic commercial for Jesus and the eyewitnesses. Guys, there's a reason why it's on the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list. And I mean, I am stingy. I'm stingy with that book list now. Like when I take a book off and put a new book on, my goodness, it better be an earth shatterer. So I really, really appreciate your time today talking about all this. I have sure. way more questions for you, but perhaps we can set that up for another interview <laughs> sure. down the line. Sure. Absolutely. But for now, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I'm good. Thank you for having me on, Kyle. It's been a pleasure. Trevor Thompson, thank you for coming on a Daunted Life of Man's podcast. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed my time with Trevor Thompson. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've only got two links for you today. I want you guys to check out these books. It's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses and Christobiography. You guys can check those out there and make sure you add them to your library. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Perfect. Perpetua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Facedown Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>